Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast, Richard Lane on Friday, September the 27th. This week, surgery. It's a themed issue of the Lancet, as it usually is at this time of year, with the American College of Surgery meeting coming up in early October. Plenty to read in the issue, including a two-part series about the variability of surgery worldwide. But for the podcast, we're focusing on one of the research articles, specifically Trends in Mortality After Hip Replacement Surgery. This is a large UK cohort study. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors, Professor Andrew Blom, and I began by asking him why the focus on mortality after hip surgery, given that it is, happily, a fairly rare event, and what were the main aims of his study. Most studies show that in the 90 days after hip replacement, mortality is around about 1%. And indeed, in our study, we found that it varied from 2003, where it was six in a thousand to three in a thousand in 2011. And the reason uh, mortality is important is that hip replacement is incredibly common. So for example, in England and Wales, we do 85,000 of these a year. So even though the percentages might be small, those do translate into big numbers. The aims of our study were to estimate the risk of death after surgery and to see whether this was changing with time. And we also wanted to identify which patient factors and treatment factors were associated with either increased or decreased mortality. Thanks very much. That's clear. And yes, of course, um, it is a common procedure. I'm sure most of us know someone who has had uh, has had this procedure. In terms of the type of surgery that people receive, I mean, this is a perennial issue for surgery generally. Is there variation in the type of surgery that people may undergo if they're having hip replacement? Yes, I think, uh, as is true with all common procedures, there are many, many different ways of doing it. And because there are um, very many stages in a procedure like this, there's a lot of variability. So, for example, there are many different ways of giving the anesthetic. There are many different approaches to the hip. And then once you're inside, there are many different types of prosthesis, in fact, thousands of types of prosthesis on the market. And then the post-operative care can vary. So, for example, um, whether mechanical thromboprophylaxis is used or not, and if it is used, which type is used, and the same for chemical thromboprophylaxis. There aren't specific guidelines then saying that, you know, surgery according to A, B, and C is better than surgery D, E, F? No, and I think one of the reasons for that is that there are many different outcome measures. So, for example, a single approach may give you better longevity of the implant, but may give you worse function or more pain. And you need to take all these different things into account when deciding which type of treatment you would offer a patient. Let's move on and tell us about this current study. Just summarize briefly, if you would, the methodology and the key findings. I mean, and tell us about this national joint registry, because the number of procedures you're looking at, a huge number here. Tell us how you pulled this all together. Yes, so the National Joint Registry for England and Wales, and in fact it's now for England, Wales and Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland have just joined us this year, collects data on all joint replacements that have been undertaken uh, in the country. Um, And it's now the largest arthroplasty database in the world. In fact, we have now got more than 1.4 million entries. On the hip side in particular for this study, we looked at 409,000 patients who had undergone hip replacement for osteoarthritis in England and Wales. And this is between 2003, when the registry started, and December 2011. And what we did, was we linked the National Joint Registry data with the hospital episode statistics data and the Office for National Statistics Mortality Database. And by using all three of these databases together, we could assess mortality using Kepler-Meyer survivorship and assess the risk of patient and treatment factors with Cox proportional hazards. And what we found was that, first of all, mortality has decreased markedly over the period. So it's gone, as I said earlier, from 0.6% 
2008% in 2003 down to 0.3% in 2011, so halved. And there are certain treatment factors that are associated with lower mortality. So spinal anesthetic, the posterior surgical approach, the use of chemical thromboprophylaxis, especially with heparin, and using mechanical thromboprophylaxis, all resulted in lower mortality, or all were associated with lower mortality. And then with regard to patient factors, there were some unsurprising findings. So for example, uh, if you look at gender and age, male patients and older patients had a higher mortality rate, which is not surprising. BMI was very surprising in that patients with a higher BMI, so that between 25 and 30, were reduced. At a reduced <laughs> risk of <laughs> Yes, mortality. I was going to ask you that. I thought, hang on, have I read that correctly? That's an interesting finding because we're not the only people who are finding this. So there have been a number of other recent studies in other forms uh, of medical treatment. So, for example, from cardiothoracics recently, which have shown similar findings. Um, and then if you look at um, comorbidities, uh, for example, we can quantify these. So severe liver disease gave us a 10 times higher mortality. Metastatic cancer, unsurprisingly, a seven times higher mortality. Myocardial infarction and congestive cardiac failure, three times higher. And diabetes and renal disease, uh, twice as much. So with this information, you can target which patients may, might need ITU or HDU and which patients we really need to make much stronger efforts to look at the causes of mortality. And do you think the explanation of your results as to why there's been this sort of halving of, of reduction since 2003, is that because do you think surgeries started adopting some of the, the, the sort of things you've just mentioned there? So, so we actually looked at it. So yes, so surgery, um, we are adopting these. And if you look at the incidence um, of these um, four measures that I spoke about, they're increasing with time. So for example, spinal anesthetic was used in 45% of cases in 2003, um, but in 67% in 2011. So they're all increasing. But even if you take that into account, it doesn't fully explain the drop in death rates. So we think that there are two other contributing factors. And the firstly, first one of those is that death rates are dropping. I mean, the population is getting older and older, and in order to get older, they have, the death rates have to be coming down. So we think that there's a natural secular decline in mortality. And thirdly, we think that other treatment factors that maybe we can't measure here are improving things. So maybe there are better HDU facilities, maybe the nursing is improved, but we think there are other treatment factors that we aren't able to measure in the study. Yes, and, and presumably a confounding factor would be comorbidities and the fact that older people 10 years ago possibly may not be as healthy as older people today. Yes, so we do control for all these comorbidities, right? So that's controlled for without the study. But because we use the hospital statistics database, these have to be comorbidities that they were hospitalized for. So people who may have mild comorbidities we can't take into account. So, for example, if you have diabetes, but you've never been in hospital for it. And those four clinical, very practical measures, how easy will they be to implement widely? Take spinal anesthesia, for example, and this is picked up in the comments uh, uh, published alongside this paper. Gets you a better result, but it's harder to do, isn't it? You need a different type of, you know, you need a highly skilled well, anaesthetist to do that. Now, the comment as comes from America, of course, mm. and many anaesthetics in America um, are delivered by nurse practitioners, which is not the case in the United Kingdom. Something like spinal anesthetics, the routine use of them would be much easier to implement in this country. And if you look at some of the other measures like chemical and mechanical thromboprophylaxis, now those are very easy to implement. 
surgical approach is more difficult because surgeons get used to a certain approach and then to you know to swap to a different approach takes a bit of retraining and a bit of adjusting but even then there is a move towards the posterior approach uh, throughout the country in any case at this stage um the one thing we do have to bear in mind is that we are looking at one outcome measure, which is mortality. And of course, that's not the only thing that's important to the patient. Quality of life. So the patient is in quality of life, yeah. pain, function, uh, longevity of the implant. And so when a surgeon decides, they're not just going to base their decision on this one measure. What happens next? Are there going to be more studies looking at morbidity and quality of life issues? The National um, Joint Registry itself will be looking at some of these things because we do have some patient-related outcome measures. But of course, you must look at all studies in a complementary fashion. And this is a lar- essentially a, a large cohort study, about as large a cohort study as you can get. But some of these things are better answered with randomized controlled trials. But how would that work? I mean, doing a randomized trial in this setting? So you could do a randomized trial for something. So with mortality as your endpoint, it would be very difficult because you need massive numbers. But for example, for surgical approach, you can do a randomized controlled trial quite easily. Um, looking at the other outcome measures, and then you'd combine that data with the mortality data to help you make an informed decision. What do you think the main outcome from from your research is, though? This is specifically looking at mortality. Do you think it's a better um, adoption of of the the good practice clinical guidelines, those four key things you identify in the paper? Is that the the most practical outcome, or do you think more research moving into the quality of life area is is as important? I think the two are equally important. So I think, firstly... The measures where they're easy to adopt should be adopted, particularly in, you know, in routine, straightforward cases, using mechanical and chemical thromboprophylaxis, for example. Um, the data on the increased risk of mortality is really important. So, for example, if you're doing hip replacement in a patient with severe liver disease, they've got a 10 times increased risk of dying. So you need to take that into account. So I would now say you would want to have an HDU bed available for that kind of patient. But I think this, you know, looking at the quality of life issues to complement the study are extremely important. It's a very interesting study, very clear results there, and interesting to discuss it with you. Professor Ashley Blom on the line from the University of Bristol. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. Many thanks again to Ashley Blom. And do look out for all the other surgery-related content in the issue. See you next time.